Hey everybody, Pierre Quinn here, and you're listening to episode 129 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Bill Ekstrom, author of the book, The Coaching Effect, and founder and CEO of Excel Institute. Now, before we jump into that conversation with Bill, I want to thank you so much for your support of the Leading Wild Green podcast. You listen to it, you rate it wherever you listen to podcasts, you share it on social media. Your feedback has been incredible, and I want to thank you so much for going on this leadership journey. And to better help you on that leadership journey, I want to invite you to join me for one of my courageous leadership coaching sessions. Now, I know we've had a crazy year, and I know some of us have struggled, and some of us have done pretty well. I want to help you. I want to support you on your journey to finish 2020 strong and to be better prepared to tackle the challenges of 2021. So I have a few slots open for my Courageous Leadership Coaching Intensive. You get to spend three hours with me one-on-one. I know a lot of coaching that's going on right now. It's webinar, pre-recorded webinar, or it's a whole bunch of people in a Zoom room. But nope, this is me one-on-one with you teaching you some of the strategies that I've taught my clients all year and helping you develop a plan for courage and growth leading into next year. So got a couple of spots available for my Courageous Leadership Coaching Intensive, and I'll put a link in the show notes so that you could check it out. I love to be able to coach you one-on-one to help guide you through maybe some of the challenges that you're experiencing with your team and then strategize around how we can get the most out of 2021. So check the link in the show notes and we can have a conversation about that. Now, speaking of coaching, my guest today is Bill Ekstrom. Bill is the founder and CEO of Excel Institute, the world's first and only organization to measure and quantify leadership effectiveness. He is considered one of the world's top authorities in metric-based performance coaching and growth. Bill also has a viral TED Talk entitled, Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life. As a keynote speaker, Bill has presented to hundreds of groups, and Bill is very much in demand as a podcast guest around the world. His book, The Coaching Effect, co-authored by Excel Institute President Sarah Worth, helps leaders at all levels understand the necessity of challenging people out of their comfort zone to create high growth organizations. Here's my conversation with Bill Ekstrom. Excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading While Green podcast by Bill Ekstrom. Bill, thanks for being my guest today. Pierre, thank you. It's an honor to be with you today. So tell us, tell us, Bill, how did you get started in sales? <laughs> I don't, you know, if, um, that was a move that I made. So I really valued my extracurricular time as well as I didn't want someone else dictating what I made and hours that I worked. So that was my primary motivator. Um, I did an internship, a sales internship with insurance, and I watched some of the senior people there, how they lived, um, the incomes they made, the lifestyle they had, and I thought that looks very attractive. So that that that's the primary motivator. So in your book, the the coaching effect, uh, you talk about a key figure 
uh, in your in your life, an individual by the name of of Mitch, that really for you challenged and reframed uh, your life and your leadership. Why why was Mitch so pivotal to your success, and why why should all of us seek to find a mentor and, and a friend like that? Well, that's a a very it's a profound question. Um, I was lucky in that Mitch wasn't. Um, a sought after mentor as much, Pierre, he was my boss. I was just lucky to have somebody like him as someone to whom I had to report. Uh, Mitch, he did so many things. His actual name is Bill. Uh, I had to change his name in, to Mitch in the book because the publisher sought my name being Bill, his name being Bill would get too confusing in the book. So I had to change his name. But anyway, uh, he never accepted status quo. He first and foremost, I knew that he cared about me. I trusted Bill. Um, he, uh, invested in me. Um, emotionally, not just with resources. Um, and he saw things, and he is what I refer to and what I was taught to refer to as, as a strong developmental bias. I'm a pretty confident guy, but Billy saw things in me that I didn't even see in myself. And then he pushed and pulled to get those things out of me. You mentioned this this idea of the necessity of discomfort. Now, when we talk about emerging leadership, and I know we're steeped in with emotional intelligence, and those are some of the things you reference in your book, but there is this, there seems to be in some spaces uh, still this this desire to avoid things that make you uncomfortable, even though they're vital to your growth. How, what allows you to be in a space and you've alluded to it before where you now this was what, what Mitch was doing, well, what Bill was doing in your life was uncomfortable. It, it didn't allow you to stay in a status quo place. But what, what are the factors that made you lean into that instead of sometimes the temptation, especially with the changing job market? Oh, I, f- I feel like I have someone like Billy and I don't, I'm not inclined to that disposition. I'll just go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and there will people there, Pierre. There there will be people that do that. You said a good word. Lean, lean into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't a quitter, and in spite of the fact that Bill made my life uncomfortable in a healthy way, because discomfort can also be fear based, mm-hmm. and you can grow. So growth only occurs in a state of discomfort, which is this whole concept that the book is around and uh, our research does a lot of this work, sees all of this in our research. So if growth occurs in a state of discomfort, discomfort can occur in a variety of ways. Um, At a high level, I just call it healthy and unhealthy. For example, fear is a way to create discomfort in a coaching or mentoring type of relationship. And I think that's unhealthy. Mitch or Bill did not use that with me. It was a, um, he had already created a psychologically safe environment for me. 
I knew I could screw up. I knew I could fail. And yeah, some people are, are not going to lead into it. If I'm coaching people and they don't want to lean into it, you know, they're just not a good fit. It is really, I'll help them understand it. I'll help them realize. And that's, I think, one of the things that the TED Talk that I did, along with the book, it helps people understand what really discomfort is. And that if I do grasp it, if I do have an understanding that discomfort is simply a feel, um, I'm more apt to accept it when I know it's healthy and then, to use your words, lean into it as opposed to run away from it. So I trusted Bill. I think first and foremost, that's one of the things that allowed me to lean into it. He had my best interest at heart. Yes, it was benefiting the company. Yes, it was benefiting him. But more first and foremost, I felt like he was helping me. Everything else trickled down from there. So it kind of hit all the legs of the stool, so to speak. So you have this incredible mentor and friend who sees so much in you, helps you grow, challenges you in many ways, creates a foundation uh, that you can use to work with people down the road. You have all of those great things and great experiences, but then you fast forward in the story and you 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 end up getting fired. <laughs> like how to how with a great mentor who poured into you, taught you all the right things, showed you how to lead a team. How did how did you come to the experience where uh, you still and uh, organization still ended up saying, "Okay, Bill, thanks, but no thanks." Okay, so that that's a really good question. Let me clarify that. The, the company that fired me was not the company I worked with Mitch or mm-hmm. Bill at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was a different company. Um, Bill had stepped aside, uh, my mentor or my boss, Mitch, had stepped aside. I was promoted into a national sales management role then in that company. I left that company. I was pursued uh, by a publicly traded company to come and take over the business development department which was a significant move up. Um, so I did that. That's the company that fired me. Um, so that was a life changer, a game changer. And I, you know, I don't care who you are. Um, I don't care how big your ego is when you get fired. Um, it's humbling. It is. It's just that simple. It's, it's humbling. Um, watching kind of this journey take place as I'm reading through the beginning of your book and you have this humbling experience uh, and, you know, we're in a recession at the time uh, that it happens for you. And then it's this thought, why don't I start my own company? Like how, how well, talk to us about the fear. Cause you mentioned fear before as not a good motivator, uh, for success in individuals, but how did you wrestle with that fear, that apprehension, uh, that anxiety that went along with, okay, let's put a business together based on all of my experience and my research and what I've seen uh, success in coaching individuals to high performance looks like. Talk, walk us through what you were wrestling with at the time. Uh, your questioning is really powerful here. I mean, the way you're even wording that question is creating emotion is taking me back to that moment in time, Pierre. So, um, see if I can logically lay this out. So there were some things that were not, um, very noble 
to be blunt about my decision. Um, and then maybe I'll start there. You know, right, shortly after I was let go, I was contacted by other significant size companies and to get back in that game. And one of the things I realized is that big corporate game is very challenging to play. When you're working with a publicly traded company, by and large, to, to a degree, they own you. Um, and you are a just a man is hard. You just, you, you work constantly. You're constantly seems like catering to shareholders. There's a balance between you know, people on your team and shareholders and yourself and your family. There's this whole intermix of things at play. And so it wasn't attractive to get back into that, but more than anything, it was the emotion that I attached to getting fired and I'll never forget. So I was getting contacted by other people. Um, I was thinking about doing some consulting work to get, you know, I was doing all whatever I could to get by at the time. But then when it came down to a decision about pursuing talks with another large company, I'll never forget. I said to my wife, she said, have you decided what you're going to do? And my response was, yeah, I'm not going to go any further with this because I will never allow myself to be in that position again. I will never get fired again. So I'll never be in that spot again. So at that point on, I knew that I had come to grips in terms of myself that I was going to do something on my own. Then you talked about fear. Uh, yes, fear set in. Uh, we put everything on the line. Uh, took retirement account money. Uh, There's a lot of things that I plugged into this. And then I remember what um, a wise friend had told me one time about fear. And I thought about it and use it. And I use it a lot of times when I work with athletes and in sports and coaches. It's a, fear is nothing more than an acronym that stands for false evidence appearing real. F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. And a lot of people have heard that. But if you haven't, that's why I want you to think about this if you're listening to it. False evidence appearing real. Fear is a projection of the future to where you assume the worst events are going to occur. And when you think about that logically, I decided consciously I am not going to falsely project. I, if I do that, that's what holds people back. Yes, you do projections. You do all kinds of financial things to look forward. But I wasn't going to allow fear, the false evidence, something that is constructed in my mind that has nothing to do with the reality, that was not going to be a hindrance to me. So that's when I kind of bowed my back and said, I'm in. I'm not going to let fear be that guide. We look you know, several years later, the success, the the viral TED Talk. I mean, if you put your name into YouTube, all of these interviews <laughs> come up with this exposure. And, and that gap between I'm not going to let fear drive this car and this amazing team and experience that you're having in present day. What, what were some things that you learned about yourself in that space between? Oh, wow. Um, 
the last, you know, you learn a lot. I, I, I mean, gee, how long do we have to visit here? Um, I could go on forever. I think arguably the most significant growth though, well, the journey has always continued. The most significant growth has been in the last few years. It wasn't in the first seven. From the TED Talk, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say that TED Talk really helped catapult a lot of things mm-hmm. in for our company and in my career. It did. But what, what I've really learned, and I think probably the most poignant thing I could share with people is the attention I, I took off of my physical being and went to my mind. Hmm. I really put a lot of energy and focus into emotion, how I feel, how I make others feel. I put a lot of time and effort and intensity into everything above my shoulders. You know, every year I'd put on a few more pounds. I would, my blood pressure would go up a little bit, you know, and, and every year I, and it hit me one time. And, and I've been really fortunate to have worked with some brilliant people, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Peter Jensen, who's an Olympic sports psychologist for the Canadian Olympic team, Dr. Larry Whitman, who's a sports psychiatrist who lives here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And one of the things that I learned from these gentlemen is that if I put tension above my shoulders, not below my shoulders, that the other things may fall into place. So I started by doing things like meditating. Um, I, every day now I journal. I call it a brain download. Other people refer to it as journaling. Uh, five, uh, not every day, five days a week. I list gratitudes five days a week. I go back and reread old gratitudes five days a week. Uh, all those things along with meditation have created a more resilient um, stronger mental mindset and all the other things that I've wanted in life have just resulted from that. They were a trickle down. I've lost weight. My blood pressure has gone down. Financially things have improved. I mean, everything has, it's really weird how that takes place. So there's a lot of, I think manifestation as a result of that too. But my biggest growth has been focusing on my mind and not on physical things. From the standpoint of coaching and well, sort of before, before I go into that deeper question about coaching frame for us, the the title of the book is the coaching effect. Uh, Just frame for us your definition of coaching and how your perspective on coaching may differ from even some of the popular opinions that are out there. Well, I'll answer the question directly. So we view coaching, um, we're a research-based company, and the book is based on um, measuring over 100,000 coaching interactions in the workplace. Since that time, we've been pulled into athletics. We're measuring the dynamics between coaches and student-athletes. So we're looking at this from a lot of different perspectives. And from our research, what we have come up with is a definition that I'm paraphrasing it, but it's basically coaching is to create order, complexity, and relationships to uh, help grow an individual and teams. Now, those three words, 
order, complexity, and relationship are very key. And without going into too great a depth, order, and you can learn this from my TED Talk or, or in the book, is about creating structures and disciplines that have predictable outcomes. Uh, complexity is that discomfort component. Great coaching, great coaches, we see this in our research, create that healthy discomfort. They're not just great people, and we've all can probably think back to a person out of life. Oh, they're a wonderful person. I love this person. They were so sweet and kind. Yeah, but did they make you grow? Mm-hmm. Well, no, but I really respected them. That's great. Mitch made me grow. You know, there, I've had a lot of bosses in my life, mm-hmm. and they're great people, and I learned a lot from them. But in terms of their uh, helping me grow, none of them like Mitch. Mitch pushed the hardest. So that's the complexity is that, that challenge, that discomfort piece. And, of course, relationships. Um, easy to say that word, but it is absolutely foundational for growth. And that's a coach's job. It is to get people to places they could not have gotten to without that coach in their life. And we refer to it in business. We don't like the word manager. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll even use the word coach before leader. Because coaching in our work denotes that I have people that report to me. and I have a team of people I'm accountable for growing. Uh, I can be a follower and have great leadership behaviors. So leadership's critical. It's important. The difference between coaching and leadership coaches have people, they're accountable to grow. Thanks for framing that for us, because I know when some people think about uh, the business world, and you spend a lot of time in the corporate context, they push back against this idea of of being the coach uh, for their team. They push back against it. They think, I'm, we're not here for that. I just need you to do your job or even the expectation because you have hired and work with some good people. Like one of the stories that you share in the book, you just have this expectation that they're going to do the right thing. And then three to six months later, you can't figure out why your, your numbers are off or, or why you're not hitting, hitting your marks. Why, why do you think it's, it, it's comes to a place where so many people in a leadership function push back against the idea of being uh, a, a, a applying these, these coaching principles. Yeah. The, 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 why don't they behave more like a coach? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, our director of research, who's she's brilliant, Stacia Jorgensen, she calls it a management paradox, hmm. which is when people go from an individual producer role, whether it's in sales, wherever they are, and they achieve a management position or a leadership role, everything shifts. Yeah. Which we we don't know why. And if I had that answer, I'd probably be doing a lot different things than I'm doing today, Pierre. <laughs> so it, it's it's really interesting. So we look at we use the term I use I love the term. It's in our book. It's called discretionary effort. Mm-hmm. That's the role of people when they get into these positions. And for some reason, people will say, well, I don't have time or I made it. You can go make it now. Well, that'd be like telling a football team to, hey, go out on the field. 
I'm just going to go back into the, into my office and I'm going to look at film. I'm going to do it. You guys go play the game. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, that'd be a ridiculous approach. Um, and if a coach can't bring out or create discretionary effort, if, if a team won't sell more or a team won't produce more, a, a team won't play better because of a coach and why are they in the role? Um, yeah. we've told organizations of people get rid of your middle management because all, all they're just overhead. Hmm. They're, that's all they are. If they're not getting a team to perform at higher levels, why are they in the spot? Let's uh, bring the sports analogy a bit closer and then provide, uh, apply it to other contexts. You know, I'm a big sports fan and I love watching, you know, live games as we're recording this. It's the, the middle of the NBA finals, we watch coaches when the game is on, when the lights are on, when the scoreboard and referees are on the floor with the players. We don't have a lot of insight or, or awareness about what goes on before those bright light moments. And, and why is it so important for us uh, as, as, coaches and leaders, people who, who are in charge of others, uh, to put, to, to study what coaches do before the big bright light moments happen. Um, you know, there's coaches have an impact on not just growth, but also performance. Mm -hmm. And I separate the two. Uh, I use this as an example the other day. Um, for example, a gymnast, her goal during a competition is performance. Mm-hmm. I average 9.85 on the four exercise and I want to get a nine, eight, seven, five or a nine, nine, you know, my, my goal is to perform, to, to elevate my, put all my skills, physical and mental together and to, and to perform in a moment, right? During the week at practice, it's growth, baby. Hmm. That's what it is about. And so as a coach, our role almost shifts uh, from uh, as it relates to practice and game time. You know, it's funny. I was visiting with a gentleman just this morning over, over coffee about this. You watch – different coaches and how they behave on the sidelines. Uh, And there's stories about coaches that, you know, it's interesting. Dr. Widman, um, one of the the sports psychiatrists, this friend of mine, will share a story about a great collegiate coach. Um, And he was working with this coach. Uh, Coach was being very vulnerable, wanting some help, wanting to grow as a coach. And when games would get tight, this coach would begin to pace the sideline. Hmm. Um, and uh, if a player made a mistake, she would turn and look at him after the mistake was made. And so Dr. Widman says to the coach at one point, says, what, what do you think it tells your team when you're pacing the sideline during a tight game? And his response was, it tells them that I'm engaged, that I care uh, about what's happening. And he says, it's interesting. Your athletes, when they see you pacing, they think you're upset, you're uptight. Mm-hmm. Huh. 
Mm-hmm. Now, how about when the player makes a mistake and they turn to you immediately and look at you? What do you suppose that's telling you? He goes, well, it's telling me that they're looking to me uh, for a correction. They, they, they wanna, they're looking to me to see what they did wrong or what they should do differently. The athlete's point of view, when I make a mistake and turn and look at you, their point of view was, uh-oh, am I getting pulled out of the game? Am I going to have to do the walk of shame, right? So you've got the practice behaviors, which is, you know, could be a lot of different things, but you also have performance behaviors during a game. So those are two separate things completely. Uh, and the same thing applies to, to business, you know. There's primarily growth. Now, usually, Pierre, if you get growth, that leads to performance, hopefully, but they're, they don't always. Growth always demands a framework or model to really guide us into the direction that we really need to go. And you introduce something that's really cool in, in, in your book. Uh, whenever I borrow it, I'm going to give you proper attribution, but talk to us about, talk to us about the, the growth rings and how they are, can be foundational to our success and effectiveness. Oh, thank you for that. The growth rings. As a matter of fact, I'm in the process of writing another book on just the growth rings. Um, the growth rings are, the growth rings depict environments that we create that 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 are created either by external factors or by ourselves that either promote or hinder growth it's that simple they are depict they depict environments that promote or hinder growth and these environments sometimes are self-induced and sometimes they're created by outside forces right now we're, we're we we there are physical forces at work today mm-hmm. pandemic um, perhaps racism, that there are forces that impact all of us mm-hmm. that we respond to. And how we respond puts us in one of these four environments. And we I call them stagnation, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's negative growth. The opposite of stagnation is an environment called chaos, which is basically no growth. But chaos is not having an understanding of what's happening or what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody can relate to the pandemic is creating a lot of chaos in people's lives right now. Um, order is another environment. This is a scary one. Order is knowing that what you do or what happens in your environment is leading to a predictable outcome. Now, here's what's fascinating, Pierre. Predictability is what creates, is what creates comfort in our lives. When you think about that, mm-hmm. it's predictability that creates comfort. And comfort makes order very dangerous because growth only occurs in a state of discomfort. Discomfort is created when your order changes. All of a sudden, if inputs change, right? I have these inputs that lead to predictable outcomes. That's great. I'm happy, uncomfortable. But when the inputs change, all of a sudden outcomes are now unpredictable. And it's unpredictability that creates discomfort. It's not just a psychological thing. It's physiological. When you work out physiologically, when you lift weights, 
you tear muscle fiber, right? So you're creating discomfort physiologically in order to create growth. It applies to biological systems too. It applies to us psychologically as well. So those are the four environments, stagnation, chaos, order, and complexity. Uh, complexity is the only one where growth occurs, but the only thing I would tell you with that is you can't live a life in, in a state of complexity, in a complex environment. You cannot. We gotta have times of hell of, of order to calm, to have that predictability, because that prepares us for times of discomfort. I want to go back to the question I was going to ask you before about, about coaches. And you see, uh, maybe you watch events or even inside of organizations, and I'm sure you have tons of stories of coaches who, who their function, not, not their function, but their, their knee-jerk response to everything is, is creating chaos. They have a chaos style of, of leadership. What, what has to shift in the mindset of a, of, of a person who is, who is leading people to bring them from these destructive modalities to seeing things in a different perspective and developing a healthy framework where disruption is part of it, but isn't their, their, the only stick that they use or the only tool they use in their arsenal? Uh, Wow. Um, powerful question. Everything, as I mentioned earlier, disruption is a, another word we'll use. Is, is, that's a form of, of creating complex environment, creating mm -hmm. discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. Here's what we know in our research. The stronger my relationship, the, let me rephrase that, the stronger trust-based relationship as a coach, whether it's in business or athletics, the stronger trust-based relationship I have with the people on my team, the more disruption I can occur, okay? Mm. Without mm -hmm. that in place, and I'll, I'll share a quick story on that. My uh, youngest daughter that, as a matter of fact, I talked about her in the TED Talk and in this whole tennis story. But another thing, one of the stories that I didn't mention in that talk, which was so profound for me to watch this take place, and it's a great example of what I just, of the example I just shared. Um, when she was in ninth grade, she really was getting into the game and wanted to begin to play every day. Her coach, the coach that she had at the time, could only work with her anywhere from two to three days a week. She was looking to fill up the other days. She wanted to spend more time playing. And there was a uh, young woman uh, who had played collegiate tennis, and then she had moved to town and was looking to uh, start to do some teaching and, and, and lessons that I had been referred to. So I called her up. We had a conversation. We agreed to meet at this place. My daughter was all in. I thought, this is great. Not only, um, you know, perhaps a young, a young person, but she was female and all the people she was working up to this point were, were male. So I thought, great, maybe could be a good role model in her life. Right. So anyway, we go to the court, Maddie meets her and uh, the coach says, well, do you care if we go out and hit? And I, she's asking me the question, which I thought was interesting. I said, well, you, Maddie's here. You, you guys talk about that. You do what you want. So they go out and they start to hit the ball back and forth. Uh, about after about 10 minutes, she walks 
off the court walks up to me and she said, hey, there's some things I'm noticing. Do you care if I go help her with some things? I said, again, you just do what you do, whatever. So she goes out and before I know it, she's, I see her changing the grip. I see her doing this very thing. And then she's dropping balls and her hitting again. This goes on for about another half hour. Fast forward. We get all done. Coach walks over. She says, hey, I really like your daughter's game. I would like to work with her moving forward. And I said, that's flattering and thank you. I'll talk with Maddie and we'll get back to you. I'm really excited at this point. I'm excited for my daughter. We get in the car. I'll never forget. I said to Maddie, I said, hey, what'd you think? Maddie turned to me and she looked at me. She goes, no way, no how. I said, what are you talking about? No way, no how, what? And then it hit me. There was no relationship. She didn't ask her about her game. She didn't ask her what she wanted to do. She didn't ask her if she wanted to play collegiately. She didn't say, do you like singles? Do you like doubles? What's your favorite? Do you like your forehand better than your back? She did. She knew nothing. Went in and tried to change her game up without trust, without relationship. And at that point, it was done. It was done. It was so, that's an example. Without trust, even at the smallest level, all she wanted to do was change her grip and her swing a little bit. And my daughter rebelled because you don't know me. So that has to be in place, Pierre. Without relationships, without trust, you try and push me, you try and create disruption, you're a jerk. I think we have some people who are listening to the podcast who who will go back and and rewind that segment because it just just hit them that they're trying to push their people and push their team uh, without without the relationship and without the context of knowing them. Uh, that, that being said, Bill, talk to us about outcome. You know, you do a lot of research, a lot of data collection. What is the outcome? What, what is, is the benefit of being a great coach? Not just for, not just for the team, not just for the group, not just for the organization, but also for the individual as well. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever asked that question quite that way, Pierre. Wow, I'm so used to answering it the the way you told me not to answer it. <laughs> um, the the benefits, the outcome, the intrinsic feel of being growing as a coach is is is, is that it's growth. It is growth. And, and if, if you're on, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you are in a leadership or coaching role, you really have to ask yourself a very poignant question, which is, which is this. You ask your, the people on your team, whether they're athletes or business people, to grow and to perform every single day, to get better every day. You want them to do more next year than they did this year, this year than they did last year. Are you doing that yourself? Are you behaving that same way? Are you growing as much as a coach as your point guard is growing as a basketball player? Are you growing as much as a, as a sales leader as you're asking your salespeople to grow? That's the intrinsic value. You need to come away and say, I'm living that talk. 
I am growing as a person as much as I'm asking my people to. I'm growing as a coach as much as, much as my setter is growing as a volleyball player. That's really what's important. And that's, that's really what we need to ask of ourselves. And, and thank you for asking that question because I don't get asked that very often. Let's, let's talk about your, your team before uh, we run out of time. And there's a section in the book that you write. It, it's easy to be humble when you realize your success is because of others. I thought that was a powerful statement. Um, that that you share not really at the beginning of the book as you're giving acknowledgments. Uh, why is it so important for us to uh, not just pour into our people and and help them develop develop some mental acumen and some resolve? But why is acknowledgement important uh, if I'm serving in this in in leadership functions? Why why is it important for me to acknowledge my people and their impact on my success and and what I'm doing? Um. This be almost this be not almost this becomes emotional for me, hmm. um, because when you really get right down to it, if I brush away everything without my wife saying I'm in. Hmm. Yeah, I know the paychecks are going away. Without her saying, I believe in you, I love you, and I trust you, that you'll always be there to take care of us. And I had three kids on the ground, right? I'm not doing this. Without Will Clefcorn, who's our VP of sales, very first person I hired, without him saying, I believe in you, I believe in what we're going to do, and he's still with me today, with us today. Without that happening, I'm not on this call with you. Without everybody, Stacia, our director research, Sarah Worth, our president of our company, without her looking at me, coming and, and following us around at one of our events and saying, wow, this could be powerful. Hmm. Without her brain, we're, we don't even know what complexity is, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> so I can't, yeah, I, I realize I started it. I get that. Um, and I do take credit for that, but I can't take all the credit for all of our work because it's the, 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 a, a team is, always more powerful than an individual. And quite frankly, I wish our president would realize that. Hmm. If we could bring people together, if we can capture the power of the collective, what we can do is, is, is unlimited. I'm capturing the power of like eight people and look what we're doing. Can you imagine if you can capture the power of the, the collective of a group of 100 or 500 or 10 million or 100 million or 300 million? Yeah. So um, thank you for acknowledging that, by the way, and pulling that out of the book. Nobody's asked about that, but as you can tell, I'm passionate about that. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely unequivocally believe that. Bill, tell me, um, I'm looking to pull, you know, say I got 
a, a group that I coach or I have some leaders in my life or I run an organization and I'm trying to figure out, you know, something to give them a tool to place in their toolkit that I really think is going to help them level up uh, into this fourth quarter as we're recording this and on into 2021. Uh, why, why should I consider uh, adding the coaching effect uh, to what I'm offering the people that I care about the most? Uh, again, you worded things in a way <laughs> that nobody else has. Uh, congratulations. Well, the first thing I would do, and not because it's me, it's it's because I think it sets it up. Well, the first thing I would do is have them watch the TED Talk on why comfort will ruin your life. That explains the growth rings. It really sets up the concept of discomfort. Then, and then I would uh, offer the book as a way to explore it on a, on a deeper level. Uh, we know, and what the book lays out is there are things great coaches, great leaders do differently. We've quantified them. Um, and whether it's in sport, the world of sport, or the world of business, uh, we know relationships matter. And here's how you create great relationships by having one on one meetings with your people, by giving them candid, um, documented, objective feedback by getting your team together and having meetings, by helping them advance in their careers. There are things that you can do, activities that really that the great ones do. And that's what the book talks about is here's what they do and here's how they do it really well. Here's how you use that one-on-one to create deeper relationships. Here's how you can use feedback to create challenge, to move people from order into complexity, to help them grow. Those are the things that they'll learn from the book. Bill, I call this shameless plug time in the podcast. Shameless plug. Give us the URL, social media handles. If there's a coupon somewhere, if there's a, a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, give us anything uh, that we need to follow up with you and your work, and especially to get a copy of The Coaching Effect. Um, thank you for that opportunity, Pierre. The coaching effect, that's the easiest one, right? Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the outlets. Um, I'm very proud and happy to say, and here's my shameless plug to that. It's been on the bestseller list since it was introduced. Um, I can be reached at billextrom.com. Our company is excelinstitute.com. Dot com And Excel is spelled uniquely. It is E-C-S-E-L-L institute.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. And here's one of the things I will proudly say. Everybody who reaches out to me directly, I respond to. I have had, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people reach out to me directly since the TED Talk and for mm-hmm. other reasons since. And I can probably say I've gotten back to every single person. Uh, there's been a couple I've missed that I, oh my gosh, I never saw that message. And I've responded here later, <laughs> but I've always responded. Um, one person got pretty creepy. So I will, there is one caveat in there. I didn't respond to one person when things, the messaging is weird. 
But um, and I've been reached out to from everywhere from Egypt and South Africa to Iraq and all across the country. And I always get back. So that's one of my promises. If you're listening to this, if you email me, message me on LinkedIn or Twitter or someplace, you'll hear from me. We've had a great conversation on this episode of the Leading Well Green podcast with Bill Ekstrom, author of the new book, The Coaching Effect, What Great Leaders Do to Increase Sales, Enhance Performance, and Sustain Growth. Bill, thanks so much for being my guest today. Pierre, thank you. It's been an honor. Great conversation with Bill Ekstrom about his book, The Coaching Effect, and about his work at the Excel Institute. I want to encourage you to check out Bill's work. I've left some links in the show notes for you so you can get your copy of The Coaching Effect and you can learn more about what Bill and his team are doing. Really love Bill's story, his transparency, his passion, and his willingness to share his journey with others. So check out more of Bill's work and thank you so much for listening to the Leading Wild Green podcast. That's all I got for this episode. You know, it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, Take care and God bless.